living the high value of life with abundance and affluence, what the Vedas call Lakshmi. Welcome to the Vital Veda Show. Thanks for joining me once again. Honestly, it just keeps getting better every month. I, I know I say it, but um, this episode is really awesome, one of the best. I think just as the show evolves, it just gets better and better. Everyone's more comfortable, more familiar. The guests are getting awesome. They've always been awesome. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us. For those who don't know, I'm Dylan Smith. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and holistic health educator based in Sydney, Australia. And these days, you know, no one's really in Sydney, Australia. I mean, no one's really local unless you're not on the interweb. So, you know, you can find me on Instagram and check out the other episodes of this podcast. Um, Facebook, my newsletter and online courses coming soon. But there's so much you know, to see around online these days and to learn. But of course, seeing in person is, is a whole nother level and, and intimate and important in many ways. So, you know, I travel a bit around the world and you can find me in some places there. If you're listening on point soon after this release, I will be in Byron Bay on September the 2nd and 3rd offering consultations. For those who can't have a consultation with me in person, wherever I am in the world, we can have a phone consultation. This is really valuable, you know, through extensive questioning, um, and talking and even seeing your photo. This is another examination method in Ayurveda called Prakriti Pariksha or Akriti Pariksha. It's looking at your photo and, and mainly through the questioning, I'm going to get to know you on a deep level and then I'll provide a diet and lifestyle program. And in addition, I will ship herbs to you that is relevant for you. So, you know, a consultation with me is really about you gaining control of your health, um, becoming self-sufficient in your health and in, and in balancing your physiology, I want you to be independent in that. And this individualized plan that I'll provide you will do that. And really getting to the bottom of things, feeling the essence of health. So this is an important thing. If you ever want to have a consultation, reach out to me via email and we can do it online, WhatsApp, FaceTime, whatever. Otherwise, my clinic's in Sydney, Australia. We offer consultations, we offer body treatments and mostly every Thursday, most Thursdays, whenever I'm in Sydney, I'm at Bondi Meditation Studio offering free pulse sessions for their community or pulse checks. So if you're part of the Bondi Meditation community or you're a Vedic meditator, reach out to them. The idea of regular pulse checks is feeling your pulse, feeling the state of your physiology, and then I'll give you some recommendations, some slight recommendations to change, and then come back in maybe two weeks or so, depending on your situation, maybe three weeks, maybe one week, and I can feel the differences in the pulse and monitor that over a regular period. So that's a beautiful offering, which happens for free for the Bondi Meditation Community or Vedic, Meditations in Sin, uh, Vedic Meditators in Sydney, um, for those listening in the area. But definitely, if you're around the world, get in the consultation. Although there's no pulse, I can we can do so much together. Um, it's just a bit more extensive questioning and conversation and analyzing your medical history and um, really asking you about so many aspects of your life. I'm going to get to know you very well. So today we have a, such a beautiful podcast. Um, it's with my dear friend who I definitely do not get to see enough because she lives in the US, I live in Australia, Yashoda Devi Ma. She's the founder of the Subtle Mind Meditation and Co-Creative Studio in the beautiful, beautiful county of Boulder, Colorado. Her primary focus is mind health through the Vedic meditation technique, healing Vedic astrology and activating the subtle mind body with the yogic te technologies of sattva yoga, which we talk about at the end of this episode. It's an amazing type of yoga. 
branch of yoga, should we say, that I am about to do a retreat in in a few days. Her deepest passion is to create an empowered, peaceful mind, awaken one's heart, and transform individuals in full value, living elegantly. Something we talk about in this podcast. Yashoda teaches worldwide public plus private retreats, yoga festivals, conferences, corporate speaking engagements, courses, and workshops. She has a bunch of retreats coming up in the US. She's got one in the Rocky Mountains this September, one in California on March 2020, and a journey into the Himalayas in fall 2020. She's also got a meditation teacher training, a three-month immersion coming soon. For that information, check out vedicmeditationretreat.com. Okay, we have a seriously awesome show coming up. This podcast episode is like a concert. We've got a support act and another support act and then the main act. The first support act is going to be about Yashoda's life, right? Specifically about her story of becoming into the way she is now, the teacher she is, about her depression, suicidal thoughts, how she was adopted, looking for her parents, all these things, looking for fulfillment. Then we're going to go into like the next support act, which is like, you know, a bit more enlivening. And that's about guru-shishya relationship. It's about the relationship between a teacher and a student. And Yashoda's had a lot of intimate experience with gurus and some we get a deep insight into that and then we have the the main act the main meal which is about lakshmi which is the abundance and affluence aspect of nature which the veda calls lakshmi and i'm so glad i chose to speak to yashoda about this i've, I've always wanted to interview yashoda about lakshmi because she just embodies lakshmi and when we get to this main act to this main meal yashoda just transforms and the way she speaks is absolutely amazing Remember, support the show, leave a review, share it with a friend. It will help so much. And if you want to take it to the next level, just donate to PayPal. Dylan at vitalveda.com.au. Send a donation. Some people have asked me about sending donations for the podcast. I do this all for the love, my time, my money. Some people help me edit it. We all do it for love. So the support is great. Podcasting is a big job. So your support would be muchly appreciated. Enjoy. As I like to always paint the picture of where we are, we're on the top floor of Yashoda's house of where I'm treating for the weekend, doing some treatments and consultations in this loft filled with many crystals, a murti, which is a statue of Lakshmi, which we will talk about, which is the abundance aspect of consciousness and so many beautiful things in this home one of the homes where which has the most crystals and murtis <laughs> and beautiful art energetic art which creates an experience within the people who look at it a spiritual experience particularly and out the windows of the nearby mountains and yeah thanks for having me it's this week such a pleasure so Yashoda, let's go a bit into about you, because your birth name is not Yashoda, so perhaps that's kind of a good <laughs> base to explore your journey into becoming Yashoda. Mm, yeah, it's been quite the journey. Um, I think most people don't know that um, I've had three names given to me in this lifetime. Uh one starting with um, I was adopted so when my birth mother had me she named me and that name got sealed away and then my parents adopted me and named me um, 
what my legal name is that I no longer go by. It's probably close to a decade now. Um, and then Yashoda came along. So there's been many births in my lifetime. Starting off when I was younger, I was raised in um, California. So definitely a California girl, native. And raised in a Catholic family. Always, um, always very deep. Always very much searching. Raised in a, like I said, a Catholic family and really seeking depth kind of an old soul that hung out with all the older people had that quality of being that person where people would just walk up to me and tell me their deepest darkest secrets I always knew when I was a younger girl that I wanted to work in healing in some sort of way psychology working with the mind but long ago I was in I was an athlete so it's pretty hardcore and the body was really what um, guided me back then and so I thought I'd be a sports psychologist and I thought I'd work with the NBA and help athletes move beyond blocks within their minds uh, and I always thought there was power to mastering the mind but I really didn't know what that that meant back then um, and then I met my birth mother when I was 18 and this was a really defining moment in my life because it at that point, it kind of superseded every dream that I had. Um, you know, I had aspired for career and these types of things that were brought up to want to go towards. But I had just this deep yearning to know who I was. And I thought that by reuniting with my birth family that I would feel fulfilled. And I thought it would give me the answers that I needed to feel happy. I experienced... Um, just a lot of depression when I was younger, probably starting my teenage years. So a lot of depression, suicidal thinking, and that was really what I was ailed by. And probably that conflict in life of being the girl from the outside that looks like she has it all, but just lost on the inside or just searching deeply and not finding uh, what I wanted on the outside. You see that's pretty common today among people who look like they've got it all especially the young good-looking people maybe they have money maybe they you know have a lot of popularity celebrity status perhaps absolutely and I think it causes such despair um, I mean each person teach their own and their their journey of what causes them suffering but to be the pretty person or to be the one who has the money or to be the one that was brought up and you know what looks like a good family it can be such a paradox and you feel like you should be grateful, but yet you're not. And it's not that you're not, but it's, yeah. I, I think so many people nowadays, because we're really fixated on social media and popularity and what it appears to be perfect. So I think that definitely is an ailment of the time. It's almost like a mistake of what's fulfilling and and then when you do have that which you think is going to be fulfilling you and what may appear to be on social media and stuff that that's the goal when you get when those people get there they're they're not fulfilled and yeah when it can maybe have a opposite effect of they get even more depressed because what they thought would make them fulfilled is not so they're like oh shit what's going to fulfill me now if that's not going to 
do it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, the biggest part of our journey as we start to awaken more and more is that whatever it is that we're seeking so badly that we think is going to give us fulfillment, we realize that it doesn't. And it, for me, in those beginning times, it was finding my birth parents. I just thought that was the key to to ending the suffering. Like, I didn't know. I need to know my genetics. I need to know where I came from. I need to understand all these things. How can I move on with life if I don't have these answers? And just like we all find along the way, is that once that's fulfilled, then there's more. And you realize, I wasn't seeking that. And that's what I found pretty early in my 20s, is that I had all the answers that I was seeking, and I still felt miserable from the inside out, but looked good on the outside. And I found it very frustrating. Um, so I, when I hit 25, I kind of, that was my rock bottom, and it wasn't, wasn't that classic rock bottom. It just, I felt empty and pretty miserable on the inside. And I lived in Los Angeles. I had my own fitness business. I loved transforming people. I had a nice car. I lived in a good neighborhood. I made decent money for my age. But I honestly just was so unhappy. I, and, and searched. I would look around looking at people like, really, are they having fun? And Because I'm not. And um, I would go to church I spent a lot of time being around different cultures. The tribe has always been a big thing for me. Um, and I've always felt, you know, in, in middle America, there's not a lot of culture per se in that tribal kind of way. And so um, the people that I hung around in LA, I just, I liked being around diversity and I love traveling. So I would travel to Europe and I would go to all these different churches and just sit in, in the history and just to feel something um, and connect and uh, traveled to Israel and went to Bethlehem and went to the Star of David where Jesus was born and walked the path that Jesus walked with the cross and went to the Wailing Wall and all these different experiences, just really searching like, what is it and who's got it? And where's happiness really? And I felt like in my 20s, I never really found that. I never really looked in people's eyes and saw happiness until I was about 26. And this is after I really woke up in life and thought, what am I doing? And where am I headed? And I, I wasn't where I thought I would be. And I sabotaged myself for a good year. Um, and then I was at a laundromat. This, I love telling the story because for anyone who's out there who just feels you're kind of in your despair, your life can change in any moment. It can be in a taxi. It can be at the grocery store. It can be just taking a stroll down the street. You never know in that split second who you're going to meet that's going to be pivotal, that's going to change the rest of your life. Mine was at the laundromat. <laughs> and so I was living in West Hollywood, and I didn't have a washer and dryer, which I did not like at the time. <laughs> and I had to go do my laundry. And at that time, I probably had 20 loads of laundry. And I was in this laundromat, and this very nice-looking guy came in and basically was kind of picking up on me. 
And though he was very handsome and very sweet, I was like, hmm, wasn't that into it. And instead of denying him fully, I gave him my email. And we're still very good friends, and I'll get to who it is. Um, and so at that time, I gave him my email. And his payback for not giving me his phone number or my phone number to him was he put me on his newsletter. And at the time, he was a really well-known yoga teacher in Los Angeles. And I would get his newsletters and I'd be like, oh, kind of toss them to the side. And then one day I got his newsletter and he spoke just so highly of his meditation teacher and how his meditation practice revolutionized his life. And at that time, I was definitely at like rock bottom with my depression and, and extremes of up and down in my depression and just really feeling pretty hopeless and suicidal. And this hit me at the right time, his newsletter this one day. And he's going on and on about this, this guy and that this guy really changed his life in this practice and that he was doing a free talk. And this free talk was about one mile away from where I lived. And when you're in Los Angeles, you don't have an excuse when it's about one mile away. And of course, I judged everything and resisted. And then I went to go to this free talk. And when I arrived, there was about 70 people lined up outside. And of course, I judged every single person there and wanted to resist being there. What year was this in? 2004, 2000 somewhere around there and so we packed in like sardines into this little west hollywood beautiful apartment and this guy sat up laughing sparkly eyes and spoke intelligently about neuroscience how meditation affected the body um had a structure had a practice that he didn't come up with but something that was scientifically proven and I thought wow game on and it was so expensive at the time it literally was like everything that I had set off to the side so it kind of triggered every fear in me but something in me this voice was like just do it you don't have anything else like going that's gonna help you and so I did I leaped and I took this four-day course and in the first week that four days I had insomnia I think I was only sleeping like three hours every night I had like severe like ADD and color coding my closet I was a little like with my energy yeah and in that first week I started sleeping which was like a miracle and my energy started calming. And right away in that first week, I thought, oh my God, this, I've got to become a teacher of this. This is how I'm going to heal people. Um, I knew I needed to transform people, but I just didn't know how. Um, and this was it. And the rest was history. And so once I started the practice, I gave myself a good year. I was a huge skeptic. But I saw so many results. My depression was going away, my hopelessness, my suicidal thinking. Um, I stopped going to my therapist. I was starting to resolve my problems really quickly. Sleeping was leveling out. And the rest is history. And I just really stayed true to the practice. I've always been non-negotiable and unwavering in it. And through Vedic meditation, which is the practice that I do, um, it kind of swooped me up after day or after year three. My whole life transitioned after year three. That all those positive results of the depression going away and, and all the 
was that happening solely from just meditating or were you also you know talking with your teacher and and with the community and going to group meditations or was that just just dissipating with just practicing yourself it was a mixture because in the first year i'm, I'm kind of uh, can be isolating which goes with depression and all of those things and so in the first year i really pushed myself to be a part of community and so every time he came back into town, one of the great things about Vedic meditation is once you do the course, you can take it over and over for a lifetime for free. And since it was so expensive for me, I was like, okay, every single time he comes into town because he didn't live in LA, I'm going to take it over. And I did. I mean, I even showed up on the days I wasn't supposed to, the initiation days, and he'd send me home. And I'd come back and I'd take the course over and over and over. And after a year... Then I kind of stepped away from community and I did a, a, a deep dive with, um, it wasn't so much community and group meditations. I did a lot of hiking, stopped listening to music when I was hiking, started connecting to silence outwardly. Um, I started doing journaling. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the artist's way where I'd start writing, you know, pages every morning that was free writing and going through this book. I still was going to church at the same time that I'd go to some knowledge meetings. And what I found was this parallel between the sermons and between, you know, my Vedic meditation teacher. And they were saying the same thing. I started seeing all of these things lining up. I did a lot of fasting, um, probably that second year on my own. And so the fasting I found I had profound results when I would step away and just go deep. So it's finding these different kind of alternative ways. Um, I still worked out a lot. I was doing yoga. So I was getting deeper into yoga. And so I would do my Vedic meditation practice, the fasting, and then I would do vinyasa flows. I love music, so I found a teacher that I just really dug. And then um, I did a lot of kundalini. So on the off days, then I would go do, and back then I was so privileged. I was going to Guru Singh and Tej and Gurmukh and all these top teachers in Los Angeles. And I just kind of oscillated between all of these different teachers and different perspectives to kind of broaden and expand my my perspective on life. Um, was that ever too much to go to different teachers? Because, you know, they say, you know, you shouldn't oscillate too much between gurus because they're all different paths going in the same direction. But why take different paths when you, one path can get you kind of quicker? To the yeah. I mean, it's interesting. When I reflect back now, you know, I still happen to be one of those people who carry two lineages and I have two gurus and that's that's not common. And usually when I when I connect with students nowadays, I definitely recommend, you know, choosing one and stabilizing one enough before you start tasting other things. Um, but for whatever reason, my mind was fine with that. The, each teacher I think I have a good mind of discernment and I have a good mind of seeing the thread of universality and everything. And so each teacher brought a different aspect of helping correct my intellect that I really desired. So, you know, my Vedic meditation teacher, who we both know, who happened to be, we have the same teacher. Um, you know, he's like the sun. He's, he feeds you knowledge. He, um, he corrects through knowledge. 
and that's a beautiful essence to have and then my my other guru is sharp like a sword that's cutting through you and he has no problem of calling you out and correcting your intellect and and almost slapping you in the face energetically to stop you in your tracks with your ego sometimes I need that and so you know as I found each teacher in different phases really fed what it is that I needed so if I went to Guru Singh he plays music and he he has that aspect of of working with Kriya and really being sharp with correcting the intellect that I loved so much back then um, I really enjoyed his classes. They weren't as much physical. Where if I went to Gurmook, man, she just physically, she has this amazing ability to be this mother love on the stage, but she will destroy you on the physical level without you feeling like you're being destroyed through words. And there was some times where I needed that having been an extreme athlete. Um, I needed to be pressed to my edge on a physical level and then in my mind break through a barrier through that physicality. And so each one fed me in a different way and never did I get confused in that. I think today in modern times where we're not at the feet of a guru and with them so much, you know, so, so many basically full time, mm-hmm. it is good to have not... I wouldn't say it's good, but it's appropriate to have more than one guru, perhaps. I mean, I personally also have two. One, my Vedic meditation teacher, who's the same as yours. And the other, my Ayurvedic teachers, who who I spend more time with. So they're kind of a more intimate relationship. Guru Shisha uh, means teacher-student relationship. But yeah, I think because we can't spend so much time with one, you know, we have to... Because guru is such a... We, when we're having this guru shishi relationship, we really need to. We have so much to ask them and so much guidance we need from them. And when we can't get that full time from someone, you know, perhaps it is relevant to to have other others. I mean, I I believe. I mean, the one thing that I can say in the common thread between the two of us and what what I've noticed along the path that those that transform quite quickly there's one thread that always stays the same. So you have a foundation. And so our both of our foundational practices have never, they've been unwavering and non-negotiable. And in that there's growth. So I never stopped going to one teacher. You know, that, that growth of that knowledge was, it continued. There's always a continuation with him and an evolution that was happening with that as I evolved through Vedic meditation. And I think this is with any practice that you really stay strong to, it opened you to be able to to connect to your fine level of feeling of then finding the right book, finding the right mentor. That might not be the guru in that moment, but that phase is needed and that connection to whatever that is needs to happen. And so in that sense of if we're flip-flopping through practices like oh I started Vedic meditation and I did that for like a year and then oh and then I stopped doing that and then I went to Kundalini for another year and then oh I stopped doing that and I started doing some shamanic breath 
that's where I think people get confused because nothing stays substantially with growth. That's and beautiful. That's so beautiful. Such a good, dis important distinction. Yeah. We have to have something that we're really building on that then we can take bits and pieces and it all starts to make sense because that's yoga. And I think that's what we're coming to in this time is, you know, yoga was introduced to the West, you know, 100, more than 100 years ago. And in that it's been separated. And yoga is like the tree of life. The branches all are on one tree. And so we're here to utilize them all. And, and not everybody, as we know, as you've studied Ayurveda, I've studied meditation, and you do these different aspects. It's you spend a lifetime in one area. And so different expertise from different teachers as we're, as we're learning. You know, my meditation teacher, though he can cognize and have this beautiful knowledge, he, he can't be as specific as my other teacher about energy and the harnessing of energy and tantra because that's not what he was taught. So I think it's a nice merging of us figuring out all branches of yoga come together. And that's that time where we're starting to learn that Ayurveda and asana and meditation and all aspects of yoga come together. Then what happened? My whole life changed after about four years of meditating. And, um, and it ended up living with my guru and being with him on a very unconventional level. Um, we were together for seven years as I had the great good fortune that, as you said, we don't get to spend time with our teachers. And I had that great privilege of living with him in relationship and really seeing full spectrum, traveling the world, really observing um, spiritual community, um, sitting back and hearing lectures, hearing how different countries and different cultures take the knowledge and what each region really, what their, um, how they think essentially is what I really sat back and watched for about seven years. And in that, you go deep when you're living with your guru. You learn in a different way than anybody else learns. You learn techniques a lot faster. You're given things, a lot's thrown at you at one time, and you process kind of in a quantum leaping level. Um, and so those seven years were profound um, of, of living with him, of raising family with him, of... Um, seeing all aspects from behind closed doors to what everybody else sees. And I feel I've had that great good fortune of really knowing my teachers on this intimate level that not all are able to see. So living with your guru for so long and as householders, as a family, obviously you were exposed to and you were learning other than the usual spiritual teachings and things. I mean, you said you traveled the world and hear so many lectures and you're giving all these techniques, but how was it being exposed to on different relationship rather than Guru Shisha in a family relationship? And I think it's doors? profound. It's profound to be able to see somebody on the re most real level, you know, to see them when they're tired, to see them when they're full, to see them 
you know, the interaction between teacher-student, the interaction between how you parent. Uh, I think one of the most profound experiences was being stretched in my perspective of how to raise children and um, finding my way in that I was raised in a family that I would say would be, you know, more controlling and more conservative, um, having, you know, the religious background and that type of thinking and, and a bit overprotective. My parents had a lot of fear that I'd be taken away because I was adopted. And so that, that projection was always there with me. And so I walked around with that. And so to be with my guru, where you really embody this Vedic perspective of everything is good and nothing is bad, really stretched me. And I walked into this environment. It was kind of like the Brady Bunch. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I turned 30 and was single and lived by myself to living in a household with, you know, five kids that I was helping raise. And, you know, being with a partner that's 26 years older than me and really sitting back and watching the Vedic perspective alive in in real form and what that meant it made me uncomfortable a lot and I spent a lot of there's a lot of silence and in, in observing that and observing um letting children have the freedom to move through their karma and dharma in this supported loving way you know never did never were there fights never were there um you know didn't get grounded and scolding in that sense if anyone needed help and correction we actually allowed for them to come to what they thought was appropriate and I thought that was really beautiful to allow a human being at such a young age to really take personal responsibility in the actions that they took and then to then think about what those consequences are and how they should go about it um so lots of things that you just you can't learn in lecture you i think probably the greatest gift i've ever been given is to learn through observation which is what is taught in meditation we're becoming the observer the silent observer and the stronger that we become in the practice it has to do with not attaching to what's happening in the meditation we're not attaching to emotion or thought or anything we're just simply observing and we're allowing for ourselves to expand in the observation and so that was my experience um i think i've learned more from both of my gurus in that way there was a really impactful time when my teacher talked about his teacher um and that when he was asked, his teacher's teacher was asked, you know, did you do this meditation? And he said, no, I wasn't a householder. This meditation's for householders. I did, what I did was I observed my guru and then I became my guru. And that just stuck with me for so long that I think when we're in the spiritual community, we're just so hungry for so much that the simplest thing to do is to observe how they walk, the hand gestures, how people, the response, how they're, how they're answering questions. If you notice when you're around definitely a Vedic master, it's always, there's a yes. 
there's always um it's open it's expansive there's never a, a closure yeah just i want to reiterate that your teacher's teacher maharishi mahesh yogi the way he was i guess in perhaps enlightened and the way that he became a guru was just observing his guru yeah. just observing the way he is and then yeah you just begin to you don't whether you you don't really try to but you begin to acquire those qualities and start doing those actions yourself yeah it gives me the chills when you say that and i think that comes to you know when we talk about you know lakshmi or we talk about these different aspects of consciousness itself we're not here to worship something we're here to observe consciousness and then become it and so there's aspects of consciousness that that's the true embodiment if we sit and we just observe nature itself that's lakshmi there's no other Lakshmi that's more profound than nature herself. So if you watch the rhythms and you watch how everything unfolds, there's no more abundance than there is in nature itself. Just observing. We don't have to take much action or learn techniques. Just observing will allow us to acquire those qualities. I think that's a big aspect. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would love to say that it doesn't take <laughs> techniques, but I would say that's probably like 1% of the world that would have that natural inclination yep. to just pop into an enlightened state. Um, you know, there are a few that walk this world, but most of us need technique. And, and that's the beauty of the Vedic knowledge mm -hmm. is that it's based in technique. Mm. And then wisdom kyan mm. you need to have both you have mm. to oscillate between the both and but learning how to be the observer in it all it's not an intellectual process mm. and i think that's one of the most beautiful things of it, it doesn't take it's not an iq that it takes to become enlightened it's not about how smart and intelligent you are it's about the innocence and the observation of of the innocence of allowing and surrendering for that consciousness to really flow through you and and move you essentially mm. so one thing i wanted to talk to you about because i feel you really embody this state of consciousness is lakshmi and for those most of you don't haven't heard of lakshmi maybe you have but all these gods and goddesses and deities and whether it's a photo of them or a statue, um, they're all aspects of consciousness that we can that is within everyone. And one aspect of consciousness in the Vedas, which we call Lakshmi, I feel you really embody and travel through down that path and really live that state of consciousness quite a lot. Um, so Lakshmi, and I'm going to get to talk about it, and also give us how we can enliven Lakshmi within us. And Lakshmi is mainly abundance and affluence. Yeah. And I think abundance also we have to be careful because we don't want to be excessive also, and especially in today where, you know, the environment, you know, it, there's a balance between excess and being more simplistic perhaps Lakshmi um, as she looks at the Lakshmi statue on yeah. her left wow to I, I think going again back to our tradition long ago 
you know, so people know, you know, I came from a family who lived all spectrums, so I didn't come from money, though we had money at some point, but we lost it all. So I've lived everything. My family, there's a certain point where we lived in tents on a beach because we didn't have much. So I've, I've didn't have everything handed to me. Um, but as I came to this tradition and I started to go deeper into the practice, part of what I love about Maharishi, Mahashogi, is that he really was the embodiment of supreme knowledge and abundance. He had both aspects and a big part of what he was really bringing to the world was that spirituality isn't about um, not having anything. It's, 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 there's no lack mentality in that. He really lived full, full value. Um, and I would have to say both teachings that I've chosen with both my gurus, they live this aspect of full value um, that I think can be misunderstood in the world. So when we talk about Lakshmi, one, she has a sister named Saraswati. And Saraswati is about knowledge. And you can't have Lakshmi without Saraswati. And so it's, it's a journey and it's a path. Um, when we talk about abundance, it's not coming from just the material plane of, a, of accumulation. That would be the misunderstanding. Wealth and abundance comes from all aspects. And when we're walking the path spiritually, Lakshmi is the embodiment um, first from that place of spirituality. So as I always talk to my students about creating this high value in life, Lakshmi is when we talk about abundance, a full value of behavior, right? We have choices as we start to awaken and we start to become conscious. Do we choose the higher value of behavior or do we continue to stay in lower value of behavior? If you're moving towards Lakshmi, you're going to choose the higher value. You're going to choose kindness. You're going to choose generosity. You're going to choose compassion. Not because you're practicing it, but because you're actually living that embodiment, right? You're living in that full spectrum of giving and receiving. You're learning knowledge at the same time that you're allowing for yourself to receive. And so when one goes into spiritual practice, the real Lakshmi is the practice itself. So we start from the place of what we would say we're creating punya. Punya is spiritual merit, and that's our bank account. It's like we fill our spiritual bank, our Lakshmi, with punya. Every time you show up to your practice in a non-negotiable, not rigid, there's a difference, but in a, in a devoted um, in a devoted way, you're, you're showing up daily, not like here and there, not when I'm feeling really bad and I pick it back up again, but every day on the days that you don't want to practice twice a day, on the days that it's rough going, on the days that you have a meditation where your mind doesn't stop thinking, where maybe you're feeling heightened body sensations, you don't stop your meditation, you don't give up, you continue through the practice and you keep showing up and in that, that's Lakshmi. 
right? And as we continue to create this bank account of punya through our practice, it allows for the support of nature to start to come through. And this, this Lakshmi is Shri. So right there's, we have mantra, we have yantra, we have murtis, we have all these different aspects of consciousness from inward, from vibration, from the visual. And so Shri is the embodiment of all of nature, right? If we think of nature itself, nature is always evolving. It's not regressing. It's always moving towards evolution, right? And so Lakshmi is that same value. Um, as we give towards our evolution, then we start to receive in that way. And so this fuller value starts to come through that we start to unfold, we start to embody. And it starts from the small places. Um, like I said, it starts with practice. You have to, if you want to embody Lakshmi, it's not from your literal bank account. It comes from showing up to a practice that opens the heart that clears the mind, that drops you into the highest values of, of being a human or humanity, universal compassion, universal friendliness, unshakable universal happiness, and a grace and a power that we're able to move through life, no matter what anyone's doing, that we're still in our grace. That's Lakshmi. Right. And in that, then the resources of life start to come. Right. So if we talk about then the, the, the material plane, if you really look into and study the, some of the greatest masters that made themselves popular, not some of the greatest masters that are reclusives up in the Himalayas, but those that really came forward to present the knowledge of the world, they had every resource at the tip of their fingers. And it's not from greed. It's not because they're saying, I desire this money. It's because nature desired for their message to then be moved through the consciousness of the collective. And when you start to align to the value of what nature's desiring for you, which is your dharma, then everything starts to come. Because it's not coming from ego. That's not Lakshmi. Lakshmi has nothing to do with ego. Lakshmi has everything to do with dharma. When we lock into that, everything comes. Everything that's needed to serve your purpose and your vision. Those materialistic aspects match your consciousness state. When you're living full value in the consciousness realm, then the material aspects also have to come up to that high value. Absolutely. And we're meant and we're designed that way. We're designed in every aspect from the cosmos down to us to have this is what free will then becomes. When we become conscious, when we're not conscious, we don't have free will. We're just living at the mercy of our karma, unconscious behaviors and actions that then have consequences. When we start to awaken, we become conscious and then we have choice and we have choices to rise into these higher values. So if we were to talk about Lakshmi, in a way that's self-seeking. That, I mean, that's not Lakshmi. And these ways that we think where we're accumulating a lot or the success that we think that Westerners have made. I have a big house and a nice car and my bank account's pretty flush and playing the stock market and I've got a good retirement. That's not Lakshmi. Because at the end of the day, most of the people that have acquired that are very unhappy from the inside out and unhappiness in the sense of suffering 
there's suffering that's occurring within the consciousness. When Lakshmi is really occurring, you're not trying to do anything. You're actually so unattached, you don't even care. But it's flowing because it supports what it is that needs to be done to fulfill not just you, but a higher vision that's greater than you. That's when you know you've connected to Lakshmi. Beautiful. So really, you primarily have to get your consciousness in that state and enliven that state within your consciousness. And one, one way is having this knowledge that you're giving us right now and intellectually correct, correcting your intellect mm -hmm. to, to live that way. But other than on an intellectual level, um, how else could, could people re enliven Lakshmi? I mean, one, like I had said, through behaviors, you know, have choice in behaviors as, as we're choosing relationships. What is it that, you know, it's not a desire. I don't even want to say a desire. But as we look at who we're surrounding ourselves with, are they bringing in higher value? Are, do, are their words supportive? Um, the, the music that you listen to, how does that affect you? Does that have a higher value? Is it inspiring you? Does it inspire you to move your body? Does it inspire your mind to be creative and think out of the box? Does your work, the work that you do, the job that you have, does it inspire you? Um, does it leave you feeling good? Um, these types of things, the food that you put in your body. I mean, we can go as simple as, as that. The food that you put in your body, does it make you feel good? If it doesn't, then you have to question why you're doing that. That's not Lakshmi. This is like, that's self-sabotaging behaviors. That doesn't add up to Lakshmi. The way that you dress, does that make you feel good? Does it, how does that present you? Right? It, that can be something that people say, oh, that's so superficial. Actually, I've, I've watched it a lot in spiritual communities, as if you're supposed to go into a spiritual community and look drab and miserable and have your legs crossed the whole time to try to prove that you know your spine is tall and you can sit for a long time. It's not what it's about. You know, as you embody these higher aspects, you know, you dress in a way that reflects that. Everything is a reflection of consciousness. Your environment is a reflection of your consciousness. You know, how, how you present your environment. Is it messy? That's not Lakshmi, right? We look at the world and the earth and certain areas. It is not Lakshmi. It is garbage everywhere. It is disrespected. It's not treated. That's not Lakshmi. But there's other places that we go in the world that are just, oh my God, jaw-dropping, such beauty, so pristine, so beautiful. And we're moved to tears by it. That's Lakshmi. There's a beauty. Spring when the flowers are popping, that's Lakshmi. So in that sense, our environments, how we, how, do you respect your environment? Is it clean? Is, it, is there a beauty? That doesn't mean that it has to be luxury extravagant it has to have a quality of it that that feels beautiful and beautiful is in the eye of you know the beholder so beauty could be the simplest thing in the world it doesn't have to have everything it's so simple it's just a simple plant in the house a simple you know it doesn't have to be crystals and mortis and all of these things it can just be 
where somebody walks into the space and they feel inspired by the energy or the clarity or the smell or um, that you just you feel like you want to be around them and you don't quite know what it is. That's Lakshmi. One big recurring word I kept thinking was choice, you know, making these choices. And the choice is there. You, you may be in the habit and these patterns of choosing the lower value. And for some reason, people think that they deserve the lower value or that, that they should be like that. Maybe they're habituated into that. Maybe they were growing up like that. And maybe I was, and I'm myself as a victim of this, that they have some mistake of intellect that that should be the way in order to be sustainable maybe. Yeah. Or why should I have this if other people are like in this state? So, yeah, I think really correcting intellect in this aspect is a big one. It's a big and one. Choosing Lakshmi because you have the choice and getting familiar with it is a big one. I, you know, I personally have have learned a lot with this. I used to be, you know, really stingy. I used to just travel and really try to travel as cheap as I could and kind of sleep on people's couches and 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 yes, and it was really just a choice and and when I learned about the laws of nature of that a really fundamental law of nature is, you know, what you give, you're going to get. And if you give more, you're going to receive more, you know, the, the flow aspect of consciousness and the flow a- aspect of nature, um, which is really Lakshmi. Everything is flowing. So, I mean, that's such a fundamental law of nature, which you can easily experiment with. But yeah, the more I learned and the more I did, it's just becoming more familiar with it. And then, and then, receiving the feedback from nature, oh, that this actually works and yeah. makes me feel better and this is a much more favorable way of living. And then you can you can do it more. So, you know, I'd recommend for people to just to to have a go with it, experiment and yeah. and choose play. that. Play. I mean really, really play and different things come up in different phases. I can think back to when I was in my early 20s and and really realizing sitting in a business marketing class and they started talking about credit and, you know, my, my family, you know, like I'd said, you know, had money and then lost all their money and somewhere along the way I picked up that credit cards are evil, that that's what I was left with. I don't know how that came along. But I can remember sitting in the business marketing class and my teacher talking about credit and that you had to build credit to then be able to get anything. And I thought, oh my God, like I don't even have credit cards because in my mind, from whatever I picked up along the way and observed in my mind, I decided that credit cards were evil from whatever my upbringing was. And that was my own thing. And in that, then I I wanted to correct that. I literally left that class and went on and just applied for a bunch of credit cards. And I was like, okay, so like I just build credit. And in that, then I can start, if I need to finance a car, if I, I can't get anything without credit. I couldn't even buy a house if I wanted without credit. And, and so as each thing started coming through and learning these different barriers, I had to question my own belief system. And I had to question, is that even mine? Where did that come from? Whether it was my parents or society or whatever it was, it doesn't matter. It's just, does that suit the soul that I am? And no, 
I feel that I deserve more. And there's, you know, so much about our tradition is, you know, that we deserve the best and that we have to claim it and we have to accept it. That's a big one for a lot of people to accept that deserving power and that worthiness, right? A lot of people, I'm not worthy. You are worthy. It's our natural born heritage to be abundant. If mother nature is abundant, then we are. And so as we move along and we start to have these epiphanies and and question, question yourself, question your beliefs and then play, play in that. And it's, you know, it's been a journey. I wasn't like this when I was 25 on the inside, maybe, but not on the outside. I had a lot of obstacles and barriers to move through. And big one was also living with my guru. When I lived with him, this was a big thing that revolutionized my life he was a yes person he said yes to everything everything was possible even if he would have known that it wasn't possible he always says yes right so living with him it allowed for me to literally I could manifest anything whatever whatever was needed all he needed was a number how much is that and maybe we didn't have that money at the moment how much is that and then he would manifest that, right? Anything that needed to happen, saying yes. Saying yes and not closing ourselves off is such a big part of it. And I play with that a lot. And I'll have a lot of my students nowadays um, say, I've noticed, you know, you never, you never say no to us. And I'm like, yeah, because nature never says no to you. It's only you that says no. And so when we practice that, we start to see the abilities of what nature's organizing. Sometimes the door might close, but that's because another one's opening. And so play, play, play with these different things. Um, I mean, it can be as silly as paying for your bags that are overweight <laughs> at the airport, which I just did a lot <laughs> in India. And I just saw the projection of just the people on the airlines when they asked me, you know, if I wanted to shift things out of my bag and I just looked at them and I said, no, I'd like to pay. And they were blown away. And I just thought, why is that such a big deal on an energetic level? But it, remembering that everything's energy, mm. I think that makes it easier yes. too. Because quite honestly, a diamond, we're the ones that put value on that. It's just a rock. Money, it's just paper, right? That, that lesson... When I was in India, when uh, our elections were happening, I happened to be in India at the time where the currency became irrelevant. They just decided out of nowhere that the $500 rupee was irrelevant. And I can't believe in that, another bill. And in that moment, I really learned like, oh my God, like what if I came home and our president just said, all $100 bills, they don't matter anymore. And that really made me think like, wow, this really, everything's just energy. Whatever we give value to, will have value so yes our government says one thing but we can do that in our own minds so it's like let's just play with the energy that's coming and going and one big thing is is that law of nature that if you're feeling low in lakshmi just give and people are fearful of this because especially if you're in that state of whether you want to call it low lakshmi or lack of abundance feeling you're at the bottom of that um they're fearful to give because you know they don't have a lot of that or so they think 
So, but but it but it truly works. No, it really <laughs> does. Whatever you want to receive, you got to give, and you have to kind of break that, get out of that fear, and and as you're saying, play with it and see. And I guarantee you, it will work. It's a it's a absolute law of nature. And when we say give, it's not it's not just money. It's not it's probably the highest value of what we can give in life is is our time and our attention. So, you know, if we're really stuck in ourselves, go volunteer. Go volunteer your time with maybe what it is that you struggle with. You know, volunteer your time with children that are needy. Volunteer with cancer patients. Volunteer with uh, those who have addiction. Volunteer and, and step beyond yourself and, and give your time. And if, if you're not willing to do that, then look at those in your life that you could spend your time with and and in a higher value way just listening to people everyone just wants to be listened to but when i observed my teacher when he would the way he is with money is the tide comes in and the tide goes out and you know he could come down to nothing no one really knows that but he's doing that and he has a lot of things to pay for and uh, a lot of people to take care of. And in that, every time the tide would go low, he always gave. He's always teaching people free. No one knows this about him. He just teach people. It could be the last $500 he has in his bank account. And he would walk up to somebody who is needy and he'd give $500 to them. The last $500 that he has. And then all of a sudden, the tide comes in. Watch him do that over and over and over and over and over. Just such beauty of that giving and receiving and and embodying that fearlessness. Um, And then there just comes a certain point where that that Shri, that Lakshmi becomes, the dam breaks and it just becomes this nonstop moving river. And you don't even have, you're not, you never control it. So my other teacher on the other end, he's got so much Shakti, so much Lakshmi. Whatever he says just happens. He doesn't even need to try. Just the support of nature is there because of how he supports so many and how he gives his time and his teachings and how he shows up to life no matter what. Um, nature is always supporting in his resources because he's always tur- he always turns around and gives. You give him chocolates, he takes one and gives it to everybody. I just want to add from my personal experience also on on the more materialistic level. And if people want to um, perhaps, you know, know what to give and, you know, if they're not, if they not necessarily offer their teachings or their wisdom or other than donating your time, your service to others, give, give your material um, monetary assets and, and give a good amount of that more than that's comfortable my teachers recently put me through like a washing machine in how i should be dealing with the exchange of in in my work and specifically with all the the money that comes from when i treat patients and and the herbs and everything and that i should be donating a a large amount of that to people who don't have medicine who need it and and also to yagyas to ceremonies to ceremonies to trigger certain laws of nature they they really and just to kind of make everything flow more and balance balance yeah balance the karma um and and 
ever since I did that and really paying extra attention to making sure that that happens correctly and not missing things, you know, even including, you know, all the, every cash that I get, like just make sure half of that goes to that. And, and ever since then, it's the, the flow is increased on both ends and it, it works out for everyone. So yeah, this, this more flow state in and out and to this channel, this channel, it's, it's much more fun. It's much more luxury, <laughs> Shri, that kind of wholeness, it's a wholeness about it and fulfilling to on it, on so many levels to so many people to so many areas of life and consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think the real Shri gets to the point when when you're working for something that's greater than you. Never do you, work, do you wake up in the morning anymore and is it about you? You know, the, the money that flows, the resources that come, it has nothing to do with you anymore. It, it's, it's there to serve a greater purpose. And that's when that flow really rises. And that's that ability of, you know, creating ways that, that give back. And you're starting to see that in our society. And I think having more examples for people to really see, we haven't had a lot. It's been a time that's been really selfish and self-seeking and power oriented. And so we watch these big companies and all of these things that we haven't had a lot of examples. And we're just now starting to see, I love how this new generation, they have a higher quality of Lakshmi. The millennials don't want to support, you know, big corporations that aren't turning around and giving in a way that's supporting our environment, that's supporting the real needs of what this planet needs. You're starting to see more billionaires turning around and and contributing in a way that's that's inspiring. I mean, just Patagonia, you know, the owner of that company is inspiring human being to take all of his tax money and to turn around and give it to these higher perspectives to help the planet. Um, that's Lakshmi, that value, or creating companies that are giving in a way of it, the, the creativity. Part of Lakshmi is this infinite organizing power of shakti and our creativity and so learning how to take our resources and then turning it into this higher value so these companies that are learning how to take plastic bottles and then really use them in the way that can be recycled in a whole nother way again this is out of the box type of lakshmi thinking right taking what we have and making it in this um, more expansive way and and you're starting to see that um, more in the world and I think there's a lot more to come as this ripple effect of awakening is happening yeah. beautiful and that's so much more profound than having a big bank account that expansive experience you acquire and that fulfilling heart experience of giving and sharing and yeah it's much more profound than having the zeros on your Totally. There's no way that you can embody Lakshmi when it's only self-seeking. Yeah. That's that's not the true Lakshmi. That's at all. Lakshmi mm -hmm. is is expansive in every way and mm -hmm. all inclusive. I know this may be a big topic, but just let's. You talked a bit about one guru. Can you talk a bit about your other guru and what you've 
you know, you mentioned first you went to the Vedic meditation and that Guru is the foundation and that's the thread that's maintained and then you've kind of gone on to this other exploration of specifically about energies and how to cultivate energy and how to use it in different ways. I was about seven years into my practice with Vedic meditation and I'd really gone from, you know, this hardcore athlete movement and whatever and then seven years where I really started to embody the stillness and finding the calming of the mind and all of that. And I hit that point. And uh, at the point, my guru is quite young, Anand, and he was my Jyotish at the time and wasn't quite known. He was working with people and Jyotish is a Vedic astrologer. Yeah. And in fact, episode two of this podcast is with Anand Mehrotra on Vedic astrology. You guys are going to love it. <laughs> this, the science of light, it will blow your mind and so will he. <laughs> so stay tuned. Um, so Anand, young, genius, brilliant. At the time that I met him, he was maybe 25. Hmm. And... Um, a lot more quiet than he is now <laughs> and embodied this wisdom of, you know, at that time felt like a 60 year old and, um, and seven years into the practice, I had only really known him as, as, as my Jyotish, you know, guiding me with my, my Vedic astrology and helping me understand the energies that were coming through me from the cosmos essentially. And by year seven with Vedic meditation, it's, Vedic meditation is very, it, it's about its supreme knowledge. So you're going inward and then you're receiving a lot of wisdom. And I had come from a very active background and I just kind of hit this point where I actually broke down to Anon and was crying to him in a session and just said, you know, I've been taught, you know, life is bliss and this, it's like, I'm finally where my mind is like calm and, you know, actually has nothing at certain points in between the thoughts. And I was like, but I'm young and I just want to feel alive. Like I want to dance and I need, like, I want to use my voice. And in, in the Vedic meditation tradition, there's, it's, it's not a lot of that. And I sat with him and he was just forming what he has brought to the world, which is Sattva Yoga. And it's, it's, uh, Himalayan, um, it's, uh, Himalayan Tantra. And I didn't know anything about it. And I was just sitting with him kind of just crying. And he said, we had like laid out this three year plan cause I was a mom and I'd not been working for three and a half, four years. And I was just dying to express myself. And he said, he said, well, you know, tells me a few things. And, and he said, you should come learn what I teach. And I was like, I don't even know what you teach, but I don't care. Whatever your consciousness is amazing. And I'm just in tears. And I was like, whatever you do, I'll do. And so I went to his first workshop and that was probably eight, nine years ago. And it was so dynamic. It was everything that I was craving. And it was the perfect layer to what I already had. And like I had said so early in the conversation, I never stopped Vedic meditation. So I kept evolving in that and that stayed strong. And then the sattva came in and what I experienced, he teaches what 
we don't call classes, they're journeys, because he takes you on a journey through consciousness, through transcendence, through movement, and he brings all branches of yoga together. And to me, that's the call of the time. And he's been right, well, he's ahead of time. He's, he's put together where you bring in kyan, the wisdom, you bring in meditation, you bring in laya yoga, which opens the heart, the bhakti, the kundalini yoga, the um, asana to move the energy. But essentially, he teaches you how to master your energy and that everything is energy and consciousness and the ecstatic dancing, the, the radical aliveness that he has the ability to create is, is truly, I have not experienced it from anything or anybody else except him. And so the ability for him to have been able to design um, teachers to be able to go and then teach this, of course, I had to get on that boat <laughs> and I had to learn for myself. And so Having taught that and continuing to learn with him, I just finished his first Jyotish training. and He's got all these layers to really awaken all aspects of yoga and really teach in a mainstream way. Um, and you can't help, but once you experience it, you can't help but love it. Um, it gets you to step beyond your comfort zone. It, um, you learn how to play with energy through kriyas, through breath work, through asana. You use the whole entire spectrum to make the body come alive on this pranic level that's profound at the same time as what we've talked about this whole time of correcting the intellect. It's just, it's happening as you're doing these kriyas, right? And these kriyas, again, he uses kriyas that come from Himalayan traditional, um, kundalini not the the yogi bhanjan so there's a difference it's based in traditional sanskrit and um it's just powerful so with vedic meditation it's been this powerful experience because from vedic meditation we're taught how to transcend so we learn we're just like becoming more and more masterful of transcending with eyes open but the whole point is to transcend with eyes open right and to experience this unboundedness while moving in dynamic action and it, when you're with Anand, if you know how to transcend, whew, these Kriyas just blow your mind. So many people are attracted to ayahuasca and, and all of these psychedelics. And you can experience all of that in Sattva Yoga. You don't even need to take anything to experience these God consciousness experiences or unity and you can experience it in Vedic meditation too but it's different when you're dancing and you're experiencing unity consciousness or all of a sudden you're experiencing God consciousness and your breath work and it's and, and you you did it naturally it's unbelievable um, experience and then now coming into the Jyotish and having this this deeper understanding that Really, the design of the Sattva Yoga and the Kundalini, the Tantra, everything is Tantra and Mantra, and um, that our charts are energy, and the planets are energy. It all it, that's the union that we're creating is this cosmic awareness. How do we use the energies? How do we use the energy that Jupiter has in the sky right now? How do we use the energy um, and find the full value of that and, and really merge into how to live 
Jupiter and that experience that it feeds us, or Venus, or the sun, or the moon, all these different aspects, as you'll hear when you hear him talk, so I can't even begin to speak as eloquently and as brilliantly as he does. Um, but that's the path that I fell into. And so they both, to me, fit. I don't ever, there's, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to always say, don't make a fish milkshake, which means don't throw it all in together and start mixing it up. And so that always stuck with me as well. And so understanding when I have two different lineages that I don't mix them, I layer them. And it's that's like Kriya. So I've got these layers and it allows for you to have, you build on those layers. And we've got to awaken our energy. We've got to purify the mind. We've got to awaken our prana. And so Anand really teaches from that aspect of um, awakening all the koshic layers. And that's what yoga is about, these koshic layers, the body layer, the breath layer, the mind layer, the wisdom body, and then the bliss body. So this sattva yoga is, is extremely diverse, as you can tell from what you've said, and, and I've also experienced it mainly from from just doing a seven-day retreat with Anand where we did Sattva journeys every day and that's it was it was very profound and personally I experienced this energies specifically related with the Kundalini and the chakras like like I've never experienced before and um, this Sattva Yoga is significantly growing in the world um, exponentially, he's teaching so many people. There's a lot of people going to do teacher trainings, a lot of more teachers. Everyone's learning it because they they learn it and they do suffer journeys and they're like, wow, this is this is amazing. This is actually really enlivening this energy within me. It's so much more profound than the average yoga class. And from what you've seen, for people who don't, because it's such a diverse. Um, practice and and very radical as you said uh, radical aliveness um if people don't have kind of that because the vedic meditation is very foundational it's very establishing your true state of being and giving you a really good foundation and knowing who you are and establishing yourself in being yeah so have you seen other people who've gone into this sattva yoga and kind of got radical and playing with all these energies and, and being exposed to th these energies, but they don't have this state of being established. Yeah, I have, for sure. Um, yeah, they don't have an anchor to anchor them. I mean, I see it a lot in a lot of practices that are more air and um, ether, and there's not an anchoring, an earthiness to them in that sense. Um so yeah, when you're working with energy, you need to balance on the other end. And, and this is why I say, you know, if you, as you go into any technique, but, you know, since we know Vedic meditation, that's what I'm going to talk from. But when you go in and you're established in being, which is really transcendence, and what is transcendence on that basic level is to move beyond thought and to experience the unbounded, timeless, eternal self. And when we experience that, that grounding, it anchors us so when we come out to be able to then work with energy it's it's a necessity because otherwise then we blast ourselves with too much energy not enough earth so um we we definitely need that balance between the two i think it's essential and and, and anand will talk about 
you know, you have to have a meditation practice. And if, if I watch people in the community that might not be getting to their practice as much as they should, you, it's very apparent. Um, it's very apparent, but it's helpful when, when we have that baseline of, of establishing being and, and then moving from that place. Once you move from that place, sky's the limit of anything you want to do. That's the fun. That's the play of it all. You know, however, if you, how, whatever you want to move into with that established being, sky is the limit. Beautiful. If people want to find you, learn from you, experience in person, whether it's your meditation techniques or the sattva yoga or anything, what are some ways that they can do that? They can do that online if they're not in your area. At this point, I don't have something built online. But I at do least they can follow have, your social media and they have some knowledge. Um, and yeah. So I have social media, which you can either follow me at the Yashoda Devi Ma or thesubtlemind.com. Um, the Subtle Mind is my meditation studio that's based here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I have a lot of people that fly here from all over. Um, Boulder's such a destination spot. Nobody seems to mind to come here because it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. The space is very Lakshmi, so it's very beautiful. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, more to come as you know this next year unfolds with having a podcast and getting up more videos and and moving in that direction to be able to feed people that might not be able to hop on a plane. Um, but I do teach, I teach regularly, obviously in Boulder, I teach in Denver, Colorado, I'll go to Aspen, New York, LA, um, Sonoma, uh, take people in India, um, there'll be a trip next year that'll be up into the Himalayas, uh, so there's different retreats, I have a retreat in Aspen, I have a retreat on the Northern California coast and Sonoma County, um, coastline. So there's different places that you can access me at. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's such Jay a pleasure. Take any day. Thank you for listening. You made it to the end. You are an avid listener and I'm going to reward you with some little things. One is for your interest. A few people that we didn't really mention the names. Um, that sweet good-looking LA yoga teacher that you showed a met in the laundromat happened to be the good-looking <laughs> and beautiful man Light Watkins just for your interest I even forgot to ask her until I was listening to this editing it and for your information the two main gurus of Yashoda's life the first one that she ended up living with and having a child with was Maharishi Tom Knowles and she did mention the other the founder of Sattva Yoga Anand Merotra so thanks for listening remember leave a review that would be much appreciated actually take action on that don't just think oh, others will do it you know why don't you do the action of giving and adding into the abundance of life you know this is all energy exchanges you know giving um, whether it's a, a donation to PayPal or doing something for someone like leaving a review this is all to help people I just want to add a quick note on fasting because you showed a mention she did a lot of fasting in one phase of her life fasting is such a broad and dynamic area to explore there's so many different levels of fasting and you really need to be careful and approach it the right way the best is to do it under a, under the guide of a practitioner who knows their stuff i'm going to end on a beautiful quote which really sums this up it is the quote is from guru dev swami brahmananda saraswati my teacher's teacher's teacher
and it is. You deserve the best. Never feel unworthy or not justified in having the best. I tell you this is your heritage, but you have to accept it. You have to expect it. You have to claim it. To do so is not doing too much.